0: This is a Radio.com original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles.
2: And I'm Mike Simpson.
1: We're here, of course, to talk about the global coronavirus pandemic.
2: If you want to beat the virus, you have to understand how to build up immunity to it. The key to finding an effective treatment in vaccine could be in antibodies. There are trials right now at a big medical center here in Los Angeles. That's looking for some help.
1: One treatment that has been shown effective, of course, is remdesivir. But what if you combine remdesivir with another drug? Kind of, you know, remdesivir plus. Are the results twice as
2: good? Scientists are now looking into that. The pandemic changing home buying will explore how people are looking for different features than before.
1: And airlines, they're trying to recover from this pandemic by luring passengers with really cheap fares, but. Is it working?
2: And speaking of working, flight attendants have been working throughout the pandemic. We'll look into how they are handling everything.
1: But let's get back to studying antibodies. Dr. Peter Chan is director of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center here in Los Angeles. We will begin with some background info. First, what exactly are monoclonal antibodies? What are they?
3: Sure. So Monoclonal uh, essentially means uh, one clone. And so when you take blood from a patient, for example, um, they have many different antibodies in them, and that's polyclonal, uh, many different antibodies. But what um, these companies can do now is they can isolate single clones, meaning they take one cell that produces only one type of antibody, and uh, that becomes a monoclonal antibody. And the advantage of that is that then they can find the antibody that binds certain parts of the COVID virus, for, for example. And they can find the one clone that binds at uh, the receptor binding site uh, of the spike protein specifically to block that and prevent the virus from entering the cell. And so now um, by finding the one clone that uh, effectively uh, can bind at the site of um, the receptor binding of the virus, they can prevent the virus from going in the cell, and therefore it can't replicate and it can't damage the cell, which is uh, kind of a, a, a two good things that can happen from having these uh, blocking of the virus entering the cell.
2: So you find the antibody that works and then you, what, mass produce it somehow and start giving it to people in what way?
3: Right. So um, you know, first, we, of course, have to show that the antibody does work in a clinical trial uh, of helping the patient. But then they, they have the cells that can produce these antibodies uh, and they can mass produce it at that point. Uh, and so what we would do is take the antibodies and infuse it into their bodies uh, in a single dose. Uh, and uh, these antibodies can sit around for several weeks um, to months, and so by having that available, it can uh, prevent the virus uh, from doing their damage. And so, you know, there are really kind of two strategies you can take. Uh, one is a, a treatment strategy for someone that is uh, uh, diagnosed with COVID, and uh, give them that infusion, and then it will bind up all the virus. Uh, is the hope. And by binding it up, uh, it prevents the virus from replicating as much, and so you can uh, suppress the viral load in the body. And by suppressing the viral load, then it can cause less damage to the body and therefore uh, not uh, hopefully prevent them from coming to the hospital.
1: I was going to say, so who would be the ideal patient for something like this? Would this be... The person who's not feeling well goes gets a COVID test, comes back positive, and then their physician would would do what?
3: Right. So the um, the ideal patient is tough to say. You know, if we could see in the future and know exactly what patient's going to get really sick, uh, those would be the ideal patients to give it to. Uh, But because we don't know exactly who's going to become the very sick ones versus not, then we can go by risk factors, those that have certain risks that we know will predispose them to come into the hospital, Uh, obesity, uh, being immunocompromised, um, and uh, certain demographics. Uh, but uh, in the absence of that, then we would really just have to widely treat people as a treatment. Uh, this is essentially an antiviral treatment, and you know once they test positive, we would just give them a single infusion, and that's all you need because it's long enough for it to sit around the body to treat the virus, and what will happen over that time is that the body has the virus in it, and the body's own immune system will start developing its own immunity, uh, and, and so that um, then they will be like any other patient that was infected with COVID and uh, that they'll, they'll be immune afterwards. Uh, but the hope is that by suppressing the viral load, you, they don't get that sick during the actual illness.
2: And how does this compare to survivor plasma? Obviously, you're, you're getting it from somebody in that case, and you're, you're manufacturing it in this case.
3: Right. Uh, that, that is kind of the, the biggest difference. Um, we can manufacture it, so we're not dependent on getting plasma from people. Uh, and uh, the other big difference is kind of uh, the, the difference between a monoclonal and polyclonal. In this situation, we know the one antibody that actually binds uh, at the point where it really works in preventing the virus from entering the cell, whereas uh, in uh, convalescent plasma, there's a lot of antibodies in there that bind to the virus, as well as other things. Um, and so we don't actually know how much of the antibody, uh, of the good antibodies that really bind the virus is in there and at what titer.
2: Dr. Peter Chen, director of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center.
1: A big federal study found remdesivir can speed the recovery of coronavirus patients. Now it's going to look into whether combining remdesivir with an antiviral drug would improve recovery even more.
2: Dr. David Bulware, an infectious disease physician and scientist at the University of Minnesota Medical School, has been working on his own clinical trials of potential COVID treatments. So, Dr. Uh, Remdesivir Plus, with the plus being the new drug. So what is this exactly?
4: Yeah, the something is uh, something called interferon uh, 1 beta. And, and so when you look at sort of, you know, how, how are people attacking the virus, there's sort of basically three different um, paths that people are doing. And so remdesivir represents the first path, which is sort of a a direct sort of antiviral agent that's targeting um, targeting the virus itself. Um, The second uh, is sort of represented by interferon, uh, the interferon, which is um, targeting the immune system. And so in this case, they're trying to stimulate the immune system and stimulate sort of the antiviral um, activity of the immune system. And then the third way which which uh, other people have have tried as well is sort of the um, repurposing other medicines or looking for sort of things that block steps in the uh, in the viral um, infection of the body, and so whether that's ACE inhibitors or hydroxychloroquine or other other uh, medicines that might interfere with uh, sort of how the virus uh, infects and, and transmits itself within the body.
1: I wasn't going to ask this but you you mentioned in passing there was that that word hydroxychloroquine <laughs> is that not dead and buried? Uh
4: that is is pretty um uh that is pretty dead and buried as far as uh its activity uh, seems to work best in in sort of the the lab-based studies, and I think it's an example that things that sometimes work in the lab don't always translate to what works in humans.
2: Okay, so we'll put that back off to the side, and we'll we'll circle back to remdesivir. But when you add in the interferon, what is the hope that it will promote the effects of remdesivir or speed recovery or both? What is it doing in there when you add them together?
4: Yeah, so it's it's by a different mechanism. So it really has nothing to do with with remdesivir, um, and basically it's sort of um, sort of activating the parts of the immune system that really have an antiviral response. And people have this is in a, in the trial they're sort of doing an injection under the skin. Um, people have also tried this as an inhaled, where you sort of ne- like a you know asthma treatment where you nebulize in a medicine and inhale it. So there was a small trial in the UK. That um, There was a press release last month. I actually haven't seen any data. uh, But then inhaled form also seemed to to work uh, well in a small trial. And so in this case, it's sort of boosting the immune system specifically for these antiviral responses.
1: So what would be the the ideal patient for this particular therapy?
4: Yeah, so I think that's... um, I think that's a, that's a great point because, as I think people appreciate, there's sort of various stages of infection. Sort of early on, it's very much the virus is present, and so that's where remdesivir and the, the direct sort of, a direct antiviral drug would be helpful, as well as sort of augmenting the immune system to sort of get it orient, orientated towards an antiviral response. Um, and so earlier in the infection um, versus later in the infection. So late in the infection, when you... You know, when people are in the ICU, on a ventilator, things like that, you know, it's really, um, you know, that's probably not the target population. But earlier uh, in the, the stage of the, of the infection, where trying to address the virus uh, is going to help. Later in the stage, addressing the immune system, that's where the steroids and dexamethasone and things like that come into play to try to, to damp down uh, the immune response.
2: Yeah, and so the interferon will trigger the immune response in the right area and when you need it, because as you just mentioned, you get to a certain stage and we have that cytokine storm that comes through and can do real damage when your immune system kind of goes haywire
4: yeah, and that's that's the aspect of trying to get, you know, there's different aspects of your immune system, and some, um, you know, some sort of sort of angle towards viruses, some you know can angle towards fungus or or parasites, uh, and so these sort of other uh, inappropriate responses is sort of the term where your you know your immune system is sort of acting like it's trying to fight a parasite or a fungus or a bacteria, you know, aren't particularly helpful uh, for viral responses, and so in those sort of cytokine storms. It's sort of that's a simplistic explanation. But basically, you know, your immune system is generating a lot of inflammation, but what the inflammation it's generating is not helpful. And so that is sort of the cytokine storm.
1: So when would this, do you envision this sort of therapy being widely and easily available?
4: Well, it's an existing medicine, so the question is, does it work? And so that's, you know, I think the target population that this, um, the new NIH trial is looking at is for hospitalized patients, so it would be early in the hospitalization, you know, trying to alter the, the course, and so before people you know, go to the ICU, the, um, you know, trying to alter that and, uh, and, and sort of prevent the severe complications.
1: I was thinking uh, – I'm thinking ahead along with Mike. I was thinking of the uh, the marketing thing. So the marketing angle would be REM plus when your cough doesn't quit. There you go.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the problem with both of these medicines is they're not, they're not oral – it's not like an oral pill you can take. So, so the remdesivir – it's really sort of an intra, it's an intravenous drug at present, and so it's really only used in hospitalized patients, so it's not like you're going to do that as an outpatient typically. And then, you know, this is an injectable uh, form, but, you know, people inject insulin and other things, and so you can inject, you know, medicines versus uh, as an outpatient. Um, well, you, meant, not, you
1: mentioned in passing, though, uh, yeah. uh, inhaling it. I mean, you, th- that would be easy to yeah. do, wouldn't
4: it? That that would be potentially easy to do. I think there were industrial people, I think they are looking at that as well. Hmm. You know, people, you know, you can... If you if you have a child with asthma or someone has uh, you know taking home a nebulizer is something that certainly has been done and that's um, uh, something that that could be if if that if that works I think there's no no date the this trial that did that was very small uh, but that you know could certainly be another avenue as well
2: yeah how we long for an inhaler or a pill to make this yeah. easier uh, doctor thanks so much for talking to us
1: people are still buying homes in the pandemic whether they are visiting in person before they buy or taking virtual tours. But what has changed is their priorities as far as what they want in a new home.
2: Maria Quatrone is CEO and founder of Quattrone & Associates at REMAX in Philadelphia. She talks to KYW's Matt Leon about what people find more important now in a new home and then what they don't care too much about anymore.
5: The National Association of Realtors did some studies um, over the past couple months. And what they found right now, what people are looking for is A third of the home buyers in the market want dedicated office space. If you think about that, that makes a lot of sense. Most people didn't have a home office unless they already worked from home. But now you have both two people, you know, uh, husband, wife, whatever, both working from home. And in some cases, somebody was in the basement working and somebody was at the kitchen dining room table working. So people now want dedicated office, a third. A third want a yard or they want a bigger yard. They want a place where they can spread out. And 21% of the buyers in the market want a less dense neighborhood. Now, what does that mean? That can mean maybe they live in a, in a row downtown and they want to be in uh, East Falls area and they would need a twin. Or maybe they're in a twin and they want to be in a single family home uh, with lots of space. Or maybe they're in a single family home with, with some space and they want to be rural. It just really depends on where they're coming from to what they're moving to, uh, meaning the change in the, the the type of location and space.
2: Do you see that day to day? A lot of people you're dealing with, have you noticed trends have changed into where everybody or where customers want to go? Like uh, I would imagine, you know, the last couple of years, people have been looking to get into the city and now. Maybe you, you've you got people, eh, you know what, it's a lot of people, like you were saying earlier. Have you experienced that kind of firsthand?
5: Yeah, 100%. I think people are people are not only looking to be able to spread out and be safe, but they're looking for things to do. A lot of the things in the city are closed. It's people that own vacation homes, whether that's in uh, the Poconos or the Jersey Shore, they have been spending their time there. They left the city months ago and are using their secondary homes as their primary residence, even though, I mean, they may not have changed that in, from a tax perspective. What I'm saying is they're physically working from there versus working from their home in town. And um, I think that that's something that's going to be for a, w- a little while here. If you look at the, what's happening at the shore Market, I mean, my, my husband and I, we're, we're buyers. We're, we're active buyers right now for Shure Home. And it's very, very busy down there. Um, this is the least amount of inventory I've ever seen. Prices are going up dramatically. And people want, you know, they want escape. They want some place where they can go. They can relax. Um, they can have some kind of, you know, quietness. <laughs> and feel good and it's really important right now that people are able to feel good because it's a tough time for all of us
1: the travel industry is one of if not the most hard-hit industries in this pandemic airlines in particular have suffered with business dropping rapidly as thousands of flights have been canceled And people simply refuse to travel.
2: That's leading airlines to come up with some new deals to lure people back. WBBM's Cisco Kodo talked to Henry Hardefelt, travel industry analyst and founder of Atmosphere Research Group, about what air travel looks like right
0: now.
6: It's safe to travel, and uh, there are some very attractive fares out there.
0: Now, safe to travel, I think that's one of the people's hang-ups, is they're just not sure that it's safe to be in a plane or to be in an airport. And that's why a lot of people are staying away.
6: Correct. There are a lot of people who are concerned about uh, getting uh, COVID-19 either at the airport or on a plane. And to their credit, airports and airlines have done a lot to make sure that they're keeping their facilities clean, the planes clean and more. Uh, Some airlines are even blocking seats, as we know. Uh, But... Uh, What they're also doing is airlines are offering some super low fares, hoping that they can stimulate uh, travel demand and get people to take perhaps one extra last vacation or getaway before the end of summer.
0: At this point for the airlines, it's just cash flow, right? I mean, they just need to have some money coming in. Absolutely. We've heard that airlines
6: like United, American, Delta and others are losing tens of millions of dollars a day. So every ticket helps. But I will tell you, I've been in this business more decades than I'm going to admit on the air. I have never seen the fares this low, even back uh, when airlines like People Express were flying the skies. Uh, uh, This is just – there's some, frankly, crazy low fares out there. If you are comfortable traveling and you are confident about where you're going – I would say at least explore these and see if it meets your needs.
0: Give us sort of a general idea. I mean, we talk about crazy low fares. What, what kind of uh, low fares are we talking about?
6: Well, I saw uh, last week I was uh, shopping uh, on behalf of a friend for flights from uh, New York to Florida. And I saw a fare from Newark to Sarasota, Florida for $21 round trip in October. And that included taxes and fees. The base fare, the amount, uh, the airline would actually get itself was around three or four bucks. Y-
0: yeah, I guess that does sound crazy low. I, I guess it does. <laughs> There's really no way around when, it. And at when, that point, when, when, <laughs> when
6: it costs you roughly a couple of Happy Meals to go to Florida, you know, something's wrong
0: here. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and grab it. Uh, so at that point, I mean, the airline, they're not even making money on that, right? Again, it comes back to that cash flow thing. They're just trying to stay alive.
6: Correct. This is uh now they do make money with check bag fees and seat assignment fees and things like that. But you're right, these base fares some of them are absurdly low and frankly as the analyst, I think they're counterproductive because if people aren't traveling, if they're afraid to travel, discounting too deeply becomes counterproductive. You're basically discounting uh, for to the people who might otherwise take a trip anyway.
0: And when it comes to those discounts, then, do you have people later on who say, nah, you no, know, you know, actually paying 60 or 70 bucks for a flight, that's pretty expensive.
6: Well, they are. True, it does create a an odd sense of perception. I got this flight in uh, in August for just $21. Now I have to pay $50. That's highway robbery. Well, a year ago it would have cost you
0: $250. <laughs> it is, it's all perception, it really is. Thanks Henry for all of the information. Henry Hardevelt, travel industry analyst.
1: The pandemic has been especially tough for flight attendants. They work day after day in, you know, a confined tube.
2: In close proximity to strangers, that would be us. <laughs> Washington Post reporter Natalie Compton talks to some flight attendants about what work is like now, and then she shared those stories with KRLD's Chris Summer.
7: Everyone has had such a different experience during the pandemic, no matter what job you have, if you're a mother. I just wanted to hear about a major part of the travel industry, how flight attendants were on the front lines right now, what they've been going through. And I spoke with four flight attendants, one from Delta, one from Southwest, one from private corporate travel, and one from a regional airline about what they've been going through.
4: What did they have to say about what they have faced during COVID-19 and having to work as a flight attendant? And was there a common theme
0: in what they told you?
7: I was surprised to hear how much people missed The customer service element of flying during the pandemic, I was shocked to hear one of the flight attendants say, one of my favorite things is doing drink service through the cabin, and I don't get to do that anymore because you're not having those same interactions with limited food and drink service. And trying to convey a smile is different if you're doing it from behind a mask. So one flight attendant told me he's been squinting a lot more, trying to show people that he's being happy and helpful. Uh, Another common thread was that obviously people are concerned about their health. There are two flight attendants that I spoke with who weren't concerned necessarily about getting the virus, but the others had seen colleagues get the virus. They were worried about taking it home to their families. So that was a new issue that they've been facing during the pandemic. And the other common thread was that many were In mourning, I guess, over the loss of some of the perks that come with being a flight attendant, one told me about how she's been spending a lot of time alone when she normally would have been getting dinner with the flight crew or going out and exploring a new city. Instead, she just stays in a hotel room waiting for the next flight, feeling worried, and it's not the same joy that she had from being a flight attendant before she became a flight attendant to travel. And now she's just spending a lot of time alone in hotel rooms. And uh, the other flight attendants were also mourning that loss of not being able to travel when you go to a new destination because of travel restrictions or just wanting to be as safe and and clean as possible.
4: Natalie, did they, any of the four express any, indication they have considered leaving the profession because of the frustrations created by this pandemic?
7: I really thought someone might say something like that because it is such a really testing time for them. But more, the, the flight attendants that I spoke with mentioned that this time has made them more proud of being a flight attendant one who flies private, she said that this has made her take more pride in her job than ever because people are recognizing that flight attendants are essential workers. They've been called on to continue working throughout this entire pandemic, and they feel like they are integral to the flying process.
1: Now, here's a a kind of a private question, so don't take offense, all right? Have you given a lot of thought, I mean, like a lot of thought, to using a public restroom in the middle of a pandemic? Well, if you haven't, maybe you will now. Researchers in China say wearing a mask in public restrooms should be mandatory because there's increasing evidence that flushing toilets and urinals can release coronavirus particles into the air. The researchers simulated urinal flushing using computer models and estimated that within just five seconds of flushing, virus particles could reach a height of more than two feet off the ground. So, some of the the same researchers released similar findings in June. They focused then on toilet flushing. They found that thousands of particles can come out of the toilet within 70 seconds of flushing and that some can reach higher than a foot above the toilet bowl.
2: I feel like we have reached our toilet talk quota for the week. Absolutely. Or the month. Let's flush the rest down. (laughs) Good luck, everyone. Thanks for listening to us. Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts wherever you go.